Great music is built around hooks. A hook is a hard thing to explain, but it's that line in a song that just sticks. It follows you around, playing over and over in your head. And no matter how hard you try, you just can't shake it. Your life soundtrack is full of hooks. Those little patterns that seem to repeat over and over. Over time, those hooks can become habits. If we're not careful, those habits can become hang-ups. Hang-ups that trap us into playing out destructive rhythms in our lives. Maybe it's time to change the tune. Time to open up the vault. Take a look through the vinyl and find those tracks that first got us moving in the right direction. And that's what we're going to be doing throughout this series. Each week we're going to listen to a great song from our culture, from our society, because I believe if you want to know how society really feels about an issue, you listen to its music. That's why you guys heard Sting's song, The King of Pain. But then we're going to take the philosophy that the world tells us is right, and we're going to compare it to what God's Word has to say, and we're going to have a blast in this series. It's a great idea, but i got to be honest with you, it's a little bit of a bait and switch, because at the end of the day, uh, this is a series that really has to deal with our sin. Not the obvious sins of our culture, not the Big Ten that we often like to talk about and judge in other people's lives. This is actually a series about the subtle sins that we many times keep locked up in the vault of our lives. We might even refer to these sins as respectable sins or acceptable sins, but there's one thing we all have in common as you listen this weekend. We all sin. Now, if you've been a Christian long enough, you've probably figured out how to, uh, how to rename it so that it's more acceptable and more respectable. For example, you would never let someone say you're prejudiced. You would say that you're discerning. Other people are combative. You would say, hey, I just set the record straight. Other people have a hot temper, but you're defending a principle. Other people cheat and steal, you're just adjusting the expense account. As I've said before, other people lust in their heart. You're just appreciating God's creation. In other words, we rename our sins so that we can tolerate it, so that we can rationalize our behavior, so that we can make it respectable and acceptable. The reality is this, you can call it whatever you want. At the end of the day, we all sin. So this is a series about our sin, but this is what I want you to know. This isn't a series about guilt. This is actually a series about hope. Because I want you to understand we're never to feel hopelessly trapped in our sin. That's why we have the gospel. The gospel was designed to give us dominion over our sins. Now, here's the problem. Many Christians feel like the gospel is only for unbelievers. It's for people up to that moment where they accept the free gift of salvation. But once they hear that Jesus Christ died on the cross, shed his blood so that our sins could be forgiven, that he was placed in the grave, three days later he rose from the dead to verify and validate that he was indeed the son of God who could take away the sins of the world. Once we get to that point, once we trust Jesus Christ, as our savior, we feel like we don't need the gospel anymore. But in this series, I want us to see that the gospel, it is a vital gift from God, not only for our salvation, but I want us to see that it also enables us to deal with the ongoing activity of sin in our lives. And for that reason, understand we still need the gospel every day. Now this weekend, we're going to kick the series off uh, by talking about depression. By, by the way, let me just say this. Next weekend is Martin Luther King's birthday, Martin Luther King Jr. We're going to be celebrating it next weekend, and I'm going to be addressing the issue of racism and prejudice. And Chris Jones, our pastor at Ship of Zion, he's going to join us, and we're going to go through this together. It's going to be incredible. But next Saturday, the 14th, if you're free, I'm going to be joining a council of other pastors at DreamFest in downtown Cary. You can get all the information at our website, and we're going to have a panel 
fundamental discussion about what we can do as Christians, what we can do as churches in our community to begin the healing process of this racial division. And we're going to talk about that next weekend. But if you're free on Saturday, we'd love to see you represent Hope Community Church at our conference next Saturday morning. But this weekend, we're going to talk about depression. And you may be wondering, Mike, why are we talking about depression? Well, first of all, let's be honest, we're coming off of the holidays, and often that is a time of depression. In fact, it was about 2 o'clock Christmas afternoon when I realized, wow, I have 365 days until I get to experience Christmas again. And so I kind of go into a funk every Christmas. Maybe for you, it's because you had way too much time with your relatives. Or maybe you were like my next-door neighbor who bought a drone for his young daughter, only to take it out and try it before he gave it to her and the drone flew away. Trust me, when I ran into him in the driveway, he was very, very depressed. Maybe you're depressed coming off of Christmas. Maybe you're a Big Ten fan and you had to sit through the bowl season. You're very, very depressed. So we're gonna talk about depression this weekend. Sometimes though in the Bible, it's referred to as discouragement. Sometimes it's referred to as anxiety, but understand it's all sin because it's directly related to our inability and sometimes our lack of willingness to accept that God is working in our lives, that God has a plan in our life that's different than our plan that we have for our lives. And I'm just gonna have to confess to you that this is one of my most persistent struggles. In fact, I deal with depression and discouragement and anxiety on a regular basis. And so what I'm gonna be talking about this weekend and what I'm gonna be addressing, uh, I probably need it more than anyone. In fact, a lot of the illustrations you're gonna hear over the next few minutes is gonna come directly from my life. By the way, let me just say, depression isn't uncommon in the Bible. If you read the Old Testament, you will discover that Moses and Jonah, that great prophet who got thrown up by the well, you remember that, they both struggled with depression to the point that they asked God to kill them. If you go to the New Testament, you'll read in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says, I despaired even of life. But when I think about these great characters in God's word that are depressed, the one that surprises me the most is Elijah. And it surprises me because of the miraculous ways that God had worked in Elijah's life. I mean, for example, just go back to 1 Kings chapter 17, and you'll see that God tells his prophet Elijah to go hang out by the brook Kareth. And so he goes and hangs out there, and God takes care of him and ministers to him while he's beside that brook. He has water he can drink right out of the brook. But here's the cool thing. Every day, God had ravens come and deliver food to Elijah. God took care of Elijah. And then one day the brook dried up, but Elijah didn't panic because God says, I want you now to go to the city of Zarephath. And when you get there, there's going to be a widow and she has a son. And I want you to go to her house and I want you to knock on her door and tell her that I sent you there and she is going to feed you. She's going to take care of you. And sure enough, This is what happens. Elijah goes to Zarephath. He goes to the house of the widow. He knocks on the door. She comes to the door and he says, I am a prophet of God. God sent me here because he told me you were going to feed me. This is what's interesting. She's like, I don't know where God got his information, but all he has to do is look in my cupboard and he'll find I've got just a little bit of flour. I've got just a little bit of oil. In fact, she said, my plan is I'm going to make one last biscuit and me and my son, we're going to eat that biscuit and we're going to die. I mean, talk about depressing, right? But Elijah says, this is what I want you to do. Take the little bit of flour, take the little bit of oil, make me the biscuit. And if you'll do that for me, God is gonna make sure that you never run out of flour, you never run out of oil. And sure enough, every day she went back to that cupboard and there was enough flour and there was enough oil for her and Elijah and her son to survive until one day her son passed away. He died. And when he died, Elijah the prophet brought him back to life. So when you think about Elijah as a prophet of God, this guy is a stud. But this weekend, we're going to find Elijah struggling with the same thing 
that we often struggle with. It's those feelings of anxiety, discouragement, depression. But if you're really going to understand the story, you got to understand the context. And the context eventually takes place on Mount Carmel. By the way, back a few months ago when I was in Israel, I got to teach on the top of Mount Carmel. And it's so cool because as you're standing there, you can actually see both the borders of Israel. And to imagine that it was in this place that the context of this story sets up for us. Let me give you a little bit of history. Ahab was the king of Israel, but he was an evil king. And during his reign as king, he turned the people of Israel, their hearts away from the true God to worshiping Baal. Well, of course, Elijah being a prophet of God, Ahab and Elijah were constantly butting heads. And finally, Elijah told Ahab, it's not going to rain until you get your act together. And finally it came to a head And Elijah said, let's have a showdown once and for all. Let's meet up on Mount Carmel. And so it tells us in in 1 Kings chapter 18 that there were 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of the Asherah, these, these false gods, and they all join up on Mount Carmel. And Elijah says, this is what we're going to do. You're going to build an altar. You're going to put wood on it. You're going to kill a bull and put the bull on the altar. I'm going to do the same thing. Then we're going to both pray. And whichever God brings down fire from heaven and lights the sacrifice, that's going to be the true God. And he told the prophets of Baal, you go first. So they built their altar. They put the wood on it. They put the bull on it. And they began to pray. And it's interesting, it says they began early in the morning, and then it says this in in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 27, at noon, Elijah began to taunt them, and he shouted, he says, shout louder, surely he is a God, perhaps he is in deep thought, maybe he's busy or traveling, maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder. And this goes on to the middle of the afternoon, probably about three o'clock, but there's no fire from Baal, the God of Baal. So Elijah said, you know what? We've washed enough. It's now my turn. And Elijah gets up and and he he gets the altar and he gets the wood and he gets the bull. But now he's going to show off a little bit and he gets 12 barrels of water and he dumps them on the sacrifice. He drenches the bull, drenches the wood, the rocks, even the trenches around the sacrifice. And then he prays a 61 word prayer. He said, oh, Lord God of Abraham, beginning in verse 36. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I'm your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. And it's almost as if Elijah says, God, I want you to show off a little bit. Now notice what happens in verse 38. The fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Then Elijah commanded them, seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. And they seized them. And Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. Now that's the context. So he's coming off of this great emotional high, but then you get to 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 1, and it says, now Ahab, remember, he's the evil king of Israel. He goes to Jezebel. She's the evil queen of Israel. And she tells him everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow... I do not make your life like that of one of them. In other words, if I don't make your life like one of those dead 
prophets. In other words, this is what she's saying. Elijah, by this time tomorrow, you're a dead man walking. You are over. Now remember, this is the guy who just single-handedly slew 850 bad guys, right? But now Elijah, this great prophet, this powerful prophet of God, is totally wiped out, totally blown away, totally discouraged by Jezebel's threat. So much so that we read in verse 3, Elijah was afraid and he ran for his life. In fact, we're going to see not only did he run for his life, he ends up hiding out in a cave. Now, if you begin to work your way through this story, you'll discover several reasons why Elijah sunk into this funk while he got depressed. And I think it's the very same reasons that we have a tendency to get depressed and discouraged in our life. The first reason was he was coming off an emotional high. And just so you know, our most vulnerable moments, if we're going to get depressed, are right after some kind of great victory, right after some kind of emotional high. For me, it's, sometimes it's Monday. I remember that I had a seminary professor who said, never resign on Monday. If you're going to resign, at least wait to Tuesday because every pastor is coming off the high of the weekend. Sometimes it's after that big build up to Easter and then it's the day after Easter or the big build up to celebrate Christmas and then it's the day after Christmas. For some of you ladies, you understand it's after nine months of carrying that child, excited, the anticipation, and then you have that child and then there's that, that postpartum depression. Elijah has just come off of this great high. He's incredibly vulnerable and he gets caught. Now, the second reason that he's depressed is he's isolated himself from supporting relationships. Look at what he did in verse three. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. By the way, let me just say, this is what I've learned over all these years of dealing with people. Depressed people are lonely people. In fact, if you're in a situation this weekend and maybe you're watching right now and you're depressed, is a really, really good chance that you're also suffering from loneliness. I mean, seriously, depression and loneliness, they're like Siamese twins. They always seem to be connected. Now, instead of just, you know, uh, isolating himself, what should have Elijah done in this situation? Well, he should have immediately contacted someone, someone that could have offered him support, encouragement, someone who could have offered him some objectivity. But it's interesting how our human nature works. When we get discouraged, when we get depressed, when we're suffering with anxiety, when we get down, usually and often the very first thing we do is we isolate ourselves. And that is exactly what Elijah did. He began to screen his calls. He stopped responding to his texts. When his friends went over and knocked on the door to see how he was doing, he didn't answer the door. So Elijah is sinking fast. The third reason he's depressed was because he was physically exhausted. I mean, he was emotionally spent. You can see it in verse four. He himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and he prayed that he might die. I have had enough Lord, he said. In other words, God, I am done. I can't go on. By the way, let me just say this. You don't go through something like Elijah went through without being exhausted, without being emotionally spent. It's interesting. There's a Greek saying, you will break the bow if you keep it always bent. In other words, you'll eventually snap under the load. You're going to crack under the pressure if you constantly stay wound up tight, if you constantly live in that stress. You've got to give yourself some time to recharge. Let's face it, Elijah was physically spent. Elijah was absolutely exhausted. And you know what's interesting? That led to self-pity. See what it says in verse four? I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better 
than my ancestors. So he's overwhelmed by self-pity. By the way, let me just say this about self-pity. Self-pity comes when we set uh, specific expectations in our life. We think something's going to work a certain way. Maybe it's marriage, right? You go into marriage with unrealistic expectations. Or maybe it's parenting. Or maybe it's your education. Uh, maybe it's your career. You have this career path that you think you're going to go on, and it doesn't work out that way. And when things don't work out the way we thought they were going to work out, because God has a different plan, often we give in to self-pity. This actually happened to me over the Christmas holidays. You may remember that a few months ago, I told you we had an opportunity because we'd found a facility to, to open a campus in North Raleigh, a part of our 2020 vision of having a campus within 20 minutes of every person in the triangle. However, we hadn't really budgeted. We hadn't planned financially for it. We weren't anticipating it happening at this time. But the facility became available. And so I told you guys, if we're going to be able to do this, if we're going to be able to launch this campus, when it comes to finances, we're going to have to finish the year financially really, really, really strong. Well, the good news is we finished really strong. But we didn't finish really, really, really strong. Because of that, we're just not going to be able to launch the Raleigh campus at this time. Now understand, we are going to launch a Raleigh campus. And I know just hearing that, some of you are discouraged and, and there's some depression maybe setting in. We are committed to that. You're gonna get an email this weekend from Kevin Stewart, our area pastor. He's gonna let you know what the next steps are. But as of right now, we're not gonna be able to launch that campus. But as I was calling into the finance office every day toward the end of the year, find out how we were finishing financially, you can see the handwriting on the wall. You see that it wasn't going to happen. And all of a sudden, I begin to kind of wallow in self-pity. And I just kind of begin to go in that funk. And, you know, I was thinking, man, maybe I'm not the leader I thought I was. Or maybe I've lost it. You know, the old Confucius saying, he who thinks he's leading but nobody's following is only taking a walk. And I start to have those kind of thoughts. And maybe it's time for me to step down. Maybe it's time for me to quit, to step aside. And that's what happens when you give in to self-pity because when you have expectations and those expectations aren't met, life doesn't work out the way you think it's gonna work out. I'm telling you, self-pity will move in like a beast and it will claw you to death. And that's where we find Elijah. But I want you to see what God did to bring Elijah out of his funk. Basically three things. First of all, God offered Elijah rest and nourishment. Look what it says in verse five. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked with hot coals and a jar of water. And he ate and he drank and then he lay down again. So the very first thing God does is he allows Elijah some time to rest. He doesn't give him a sermon. He doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't give him a pep talk, stuff that dads love to do, right? God just said, take it easy, relax, chill out for a while. So Elijah goes to sleep and he wakes up and there's like a meatball sub and a tall cool one right beside his head and he enjoys it and he goes back to sleep again. I mean, he is exhausted. You know, it was Socrates that said, it's hard to be a philosopher when you have a toothache. And I would say in the same way, it is hard to be very spiritual. It is hard to be the person that God wants you to be when you're exhausted. It is hard to trust. It's hard to walk by faith. It's even hard to be obedient when you are exhausted because exhaustion and fatigue can do some strange things when it sets in. It can make us turn emotional cartwheels. It can lead us into all sorts of depression. I cannot tell you 
How many times I've walked in to the offices at the Raleigh campus, went down the hallway, second door to the right, Gary Vett, he's kind of my rock of Gibraltar, go in, plop down, begin to talk and talk about how discouraged and how depressed I am. And he doesn't lecture and he doesn't preach and he doesn't quote verses. He doesn't say, go back and listen to your last message. He doesn't do any of this. He just listens. And often his advice to me is, Mike, you got to get a break. You got to get away for a while. The deadlines are catching up with you. You got to get some rest, right? Sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is get a good night's sleep. Sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is just get some rest. So God gives Elijah some time to rest. Second, he offers the comfort of his word to reassure Elijah. Look what it says in verse seven. Then the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and he ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the Mount of God. Then he went into a cave and he spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? And I love the fact that God didn't put him on a guilt trip. I love the fact that God didn't say, you know what, Elijah, you shouldn't be feeling this way. I mean, let's be honest. That is probably the dumbest advice we can possibly give to anybody. Anybody ever said that to you when you're down? You know, you really shouldn't feel like that. Let me tell you something. Because I've been there. When you're down, you already know you shouldn't be feeling like that. So God doesn't do that. He comes to Elijah and he says, Elijah, we got to work through this. For starters, what in the world are you doing in this cave? I mean, it's dark, it's damp, it's depressing. There's bugs and spiders. There's bat poo all over the place, right? And then Elijah, he responds with this self-pity routine again in verse 10. He says, I'm the only one left. In other words, God, I'm the only one who really loves you. I'm the only one who really serves you. I'm the only one who's really committed. And now they're trying to kill me too. Well, he's not the only one left. Again, it's self-pity talking. But again, God just graciously listens to him. Doesn't rebuke him, just listens. And then finally, God's like, Elijah, (laughs) we gotta get you out of this cave. I mean, good gracious, it's even bringing me down. So it says in verse 11, The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. How cool is that? And he's like, you don't want to miss this, right? Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. After the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cluck over his face and he went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? I think actually it reads, Elijah, why are you here? I know you feel like you're all alone, but then God informs him in verse 18, I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. In other words, Elijah, just so you know, I've got 7,000 more individuals just as committed as you are, waiting in the wings. I can call them anytime I want. So God reassures Elijah with his word. And sometimes this is what we need. Did you know that there are 365 times in the Bible that the words fear not appear? 365 times. How many days in the year? Well, coincidence? I think not. I mean, maybe a great New Year's resolution would be just discover those 365 times where God says, you don't need to be fearful over this. Study one a day. Did you know that there are 1,400 promises as a Christian in the Bible that you can claim? 
So God offers comfort through his word. Third, God gave Elijah a close personal friend to counteract his loneliness. Look what it says in verse 19. So Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. And you read in verse 21, then he set out, that would be Elisha. Elisha set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. I like the way the New American Standard says it. He set out to follow Elijah and he ministered to him. It was like God said to Elijah, Elijah, you've been alone long enough. I'm gonna give you a friend. I'm gonna give you somebody who can love you someone who can understand you, someone who can come alongside of you and encourage you. Now, let me just say this. Uh, my heart breaks for those of you who show up at one of our campuses every weekend. And if you were honest, you would say, I do not have a close personal friend because I believe one of the best things you can do to battle depression is to develop some close friendships. I'm talking about the kind of friends who's gonna, they're gonna understand you, they're gonna accept you where you are, warts and all, you know. Friends who aren't gonna be quick with a sermon or a verse or a lecture when you share your struggles. We see in the story that, that God brought in Elisha and Elisha ministered and he encouraged Elijah. Mother Teresa once made this statement. It's easier to fill a hungry stomach than to fill an empty heart. So let me just ask you a question. Do you have an empty heart? Here's maybe a follow-up question. Would you admit it if you did? And the answer is probably not. I mean, the reality is we learn to mask it. We learn, we learn to hide it. We, look, we learn how to look busy and stay busy. And we learn how to surround our lives with a lot of motion, a lot of noise, a lot of activity. I mean, we have cell phones ringing and Blackberries buzzing and computers emailing and Twitter twittering and we got those Bluetooths in our ear and the result is we look like we're connected. We look like we're plugged in. We never put our phone down. We walk down the street. We drive with it in our hand all the time and yet we have no idea how to live in true intimacy and community with other people. The reality is this. We are a generation of lonely people and when we do show up on a weekend and we're surrounded by all the people, you know what, it only magnifies our loneliness. We're lonely, and it stinks to be lonely. And so I wanna do this, I wanna wrap this up this weekend by addressing this area of, of loneliness, because as I've said before, God did not create us and design us to do life alone. He created us to have deep relationships with other people. He created us to have relationships that would help us heal, help us get through those tough times of life. My guess is everyone listening right now would say that's what I want. But if we're honest, rarely do we, we take the opportunity to venture beneath the surface in our relationships. We don't talk about our needs. We don't talk about our heartaches, our fears, our disappointments. Rarely do we talk about our struggles and our problems. And because of that, see, we don't do the things that close friends are supposed to do. We don't open up to one another. We don't encourage one another. We don't, we don't care for one another. I mean, the reality is if we were to take an inventory of our relationships, most of our relationships are surface relationships. Some of us here at the church, we have known each other for years and we're still talking about the same stuff. We talk about the weather. Wow, you think it's gonna snow? We talk about our sports teams. We talk about our kids. It's almost like we're afraid to really relate at a deep level. You ever wondered why that's true? Well, I'll tell you, it's because most of us think if you really, really knew me, 
you wouldn't like me. If you really, really knew what I've done in my past, if you really knew what I'm struggling with right now, you would, you would keep me at arm's length. But see, that's not true. What we would discover is that we're all struggling. That we're all going through this thing together. I mean, people come up to me all the time after my messages and says, wow, you are so transparent. Well, you know what? What are my options? I could lie to you. I could just give you the impression that I've got it all together, but I'll be the first one to tell you, I got, I got issues. And I need people in my life every day who I can share those issues with. And it's because, see, God created us to have the kinds of honest, open relationships that can help us work through the issues of our lives and help us bring healing in our lives. So I just want to wrap it up by offering some practical suggestions that will help us develop those relationships that will help us get through the tough times, that will help us deal and battle the depression, the anxiety, the discouragement that we're going to deal with in life. Here's the first one. Just take some relational risk. Take some relational risk, and that would be a great New Year's resolution for some of you. I love what Proverbs 18.24 says, especially the way it's worded in the old King James. It says this, a man that hath friends, I love that, a man that hath friends must show himself friendly. In other words, if you want to have friends, you have to be a friendly person. For example, the church, and we've talked about this before, it was designed to be a relational body. We've talked about the 26 one another's that we find in the New Testament, to love one another and encourage one another and pray for one another and lift up one another. But every week, most of us, we walk into one of our campuses, we look for a seat, you know, we think, wow, this is crowded, there's a lot of people here today, but instead of mingling, introducing ourselves, what do we do? We just find a seat, we plop down, hopefully it's not directly beside anyone. It happens week after week. And then after several weeks, you know what you begin to think, wow, I've been coming to this church for a while, no one's talked to me, no one's come up to me. This church isn't a very friendly church. It's just a church of snobs. So what do you do? You leave and you go to another church. You do the exact same thing. You walk in, you plop down, you get up and leave. And after a while you say, wow, no one talked to me. Nobody came up to me. This isn't a very friendly church. This church is full of snobs. And you get into this cycle and you keep looking for this perfect church. Let me just tell you, you can get over that. There is no perfect church. In fact, let me tell you this. If you find a perfect church, don't join it because you would be the one that screws it up. Okay, you know what I'm saying? There is no perfect church. Instead, take some relational risk. Step out. Introduce yourself to someone. Say hi to an individual as you're walking by them. I'm, I'm talking about really radical stuff, but you've got to take the risk. There's no telling what God would do in your life if you would just take some basic, ordinary, relational risk. Here's the second one, and this is for all of us, especially in a church family. Learn to be hospitable. This is what it says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 9. Offer hospitality to one another, and I like this part, without grumbling. It's not because you have to, because you want to. So I'm talking about taking an initiative to say, when you see somebody at church, you see them in the atrium, you see them in the parking lot. Hey, I recognize you from last week. Hey, I didn't realize we worked together. Our kids are on the same soccer team. What do you say we grab lunch together? Or, 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 or what are you doing this afternoon? We made a pot of soup. Why don't you guys come over to the house? We'll add some water if we want to, you know, if we need to. But why don't we just hang out together? I mean, seriously, how many of us live in three, four, five, maybe even six bedroom homes and we never invite anybody over? And I know that some of you right now, you're sitting there processing all of your excuses why you don't have people over to your house. It would take you too long to clean the house or you, you, know, you gotta hide all the stuff that your husband has that you don't want people to see and you're thinking, I can't cook all that great or what do we do about those awkward long silences when no one's talking? Just try it. You, you will be amazed 
at what God will do. And you will be surprised because you're missing out on some great opportunities. I'm telling you, it breaks my heart to know that many of you who come here every weekend, you've bounced around churches for years, but you've never, ever connected. Let me ask you this. When the bottom drops out of your life, and it will. I mean, as I've said, like the old nationwide commercial, life really does come at you fast. Some of you have experienced that this year. In just the last few weeks, my dad had a stroke, my brother-in-law had brain surgery, and I just discovered this week that one of my sister-in-laws has cancer. And that's just within a month, right? When that happens to you, who's gonna be there for you? Who's gonna support you? Who's gonna encourage you? Who's gonna take care of you? Who's gonna keep you from wanting just to crawl back into that cave and curl up? Because see, it's then that you discover the value of deep and honest and transparent relationships. We try to make you have an opportunity or help you here at Hope have the opportunity to connect in those kind of relationships. We call them small groups. And it's just a group of people typically who live in the same area of town or maybe, maybe you're the same age or whatever it is. Maybe your children at a certain age, but you get together once a week, a couple of times a month, and you just learn to do life together. You pray together, you encourage one another, you share life together. We talk about connecting intentionally. And we're gonna give you another opportunity to do that in just a few weeks, the weekend of January 28th and 29th. We're gonna give you an opportunity, but to do it, you know what? You're gonna have to take some relational risk. But the choice is up to you. You're gonna have to decide, do I wanna connect intentionally? Do I wanna have some meaningful relationships in my life? Or do I just wanna live in the cave? And I'll tell you this, can you imagine what it would be like around here if we developed these kinds of relationships? I guarantee this. It would help us deal with our depression because it helps me. It would help us deal with our discouragement because I'm telling you, it helps me. See, most of us that struggle the way I struggle, we don't need professional counselors. We don't need meds. Sometimes you do. Sometimes it is a physical problem and God has given us the medical profession for that reason. But at the end of the day, what a lot of us need is just a good friend who's willing to love us and accept us. Words and all. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to look into the life of Elijah. And often when I look at a character like this in the Bible, I am so thankful that you're not still writing the Bible. Because if you chose to put me as one of these characters, what would you reveal about my life? But Father, I thank you that we can learn from this. And I thank you for the fact that we live in a society that is getting more and more disconnected relationally. But yet it's a reminder that you've created us to be in community with one another because that's how, we, that's how we survive. That's how we get through the tough times of life. I pray for those today who are dealing with that depression, that discouragement, that anxiety, that they would realize that many times it's because unmet expectations, life hasn't turned out the way we planned. But yet God will reminded in Jeremiah that you have a plan to prosper us and not to harm us. You have a plan for hope and a future. Reassure us with those words today and bring the people into our lives and give us the courage to take the relational risk to be a part of the solution. In your name we pray, amen.
As I talk about relationships, it's bittersweet that I share with you some information. Brian and Holland Cheney, who have been at Hope for many, many years. In fact, Brian came to Christ after a funeral that I performed a young man that had died in an auto accident that Brian was attending. It was after that that he became a Christian. And I didn't know that until I performed him and Holland's wedding. And afterwards, he gave me a card and he told me the story of how he had come into a relationship with Christ through that funeral. So we feel very, very close. And he's been here. He's worked in our kid city. He's been a director of kid city. Over the past couple of years, he has been our campus pastor at Morrisville. But an opportunity has opened up to him to become the director of children's ministry at Willow Creek in Chicago, a phenomenal church. And again, it's bittersweet because we're losing Brian and Holland, yet at the same time, it's a little bit rewarding and I guess a self-serving way to think that they would, they would pick Hope Community Church, someone that we've invested in and trained to put in a position like that. So I know that you're gonna see them around. I want to encourage you to make sure you let them know how much we love them and appreciate them because I really believe that God has just taken this as part of Brian and Holland's journey and it will just be a matter of time. Uh, they will take the knowledge that they're learning there and God will bring them back here to us. And so when you see them, thank them, thank them for the time that they've served here at Hope Community Church and let them know that they will be in your prayers. Also, if you're home watching this weekend because of the snow, uh, we still have to operate and we still have to open the doors. And so I would encourage you to continue to give faithfully. You can give online. Uh, you can go to the app. If you give at your campus, it, just make sure you catch up next weekend and that will help us if we get off to a great start financially this year. Now, let's watch the loop. Discovering the heart of hope and celebrating a Christmas season to remember, right now on The Loop. Hope Community Church is a family dedicated to loving people where they are and encouraging them to grow in their relationships with Jesus. We meet every weekend at campuses around the Triangle, celebrating in worship with engaging music and inspiring teachings that you can use in everyday life. But beyond those experiences, we're continually engaged in creating community and building families. From our Kid City programs, designed exclusively for kids' birth through fifth grade, to our hazardous and pulse programs for middle and high school students, we're here to resource your family at every stage of the journey. Hope also offers a number of different small groups and classes to help you connect more deeply and grow in your faith. No matter who you are or where you're coming from, it's a place you'll find people who care about you and want to help you find the life you were created for. At our core, the vision of Hope is to reach the triangle and change the world. This season, we brought Christmas to your hometown with Christmas Eve services at our Raleigh, Apex, and Morrisville campuses. Hundreds of first-time visitors joined the thousands of worshipers in attendance to celebrate the birth of our Savior with music and candle lighting. Just as important, last month, our local Hope Ministry brought Christmas to over 240 families through the Toy Store and Toy Drive events. Thanks to your generosity, over 8,000 toys and almost 1,000 volunteer hours were donated to this initiative, which meant that 714 children around the Triangle and across North Carolina woke up to an unforgettable Christmas. What a way to close out 2016. Let's not lose momentum as we move into 2017 with an even stronger resolve to reach the Triangle and change the world. To find out how we're changing the world for the better or anything else about Hope Community Church, head over to gethope.net or download the app.